You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston, episode 20, The Ten Commandments, Law and Tabernacle. The Ten Commandments are found both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Over the course of their stay at Mount Sinai, Moses receives the Ten Commandments and the law for the nation. The Ten Commandments are very unique in that they are just that, Ten Commandments. Consider them a summary of the law, for each of the laws can be placed into the categories found within the Ten Commandments. The law or legal code is the depth behind the Ten Commandments. What is very unique about the law is that it points out and describes crimes and punishment which are actually labeled as sin. Very few legal codes in history call law-breaking an actual sin. A breaking of a law or rule was not just a breaking of a legal code, but actually sin against God or man. This is the uniqueness of the law. Each breaking of a law could be considered doubly punishable, for it was breaking both a legal code and spiritual code, each deserving a punishment requiring atonement. Each breaking of the law or sin required an atonement for this sin. This is very unique because it presents the law as both spiritual and physical. Following the revelation of the law, God will reveal all the sacrifices required to atone for each type of sin. We're going to spend most of our time on the Ten Commandments since they summarize the entirety of the law. I'm going to list the Ten Commandments here and spend a little time on each. They seem so simple at first, but that's not the case. Sin would be defined as any disobedience to these commands, but Jesus later takes all of these commands deeper, revealing heart and motives and the spirit behind actions or thoughts. God is always looking at the heart. According to 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus gives a commentary on each commandment independently, and we'll go over both the commandment and what Jesus said about each commandment. Before I begin, I know we're looking at the Ten Commandments and comparing them to Jesus' words about 1,500 years later, but that is the mystery of it all. In fact, that is the mystery of the Bible. God is revealing himself and taking thousands of years to do it. It's almost like God is building and building and building to this climax when Jesus comes at the time of his birth and even going beyond um, to the time when he comes again. The law which comes at this time is only a taste of the divine. Out of a, a, a tough piece of the divine that can only be fulfilled by Jesus himself. On to the commandments. Commandment one. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 4. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This first commandment prioritizes all of life. God comes first. Commandment 2. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them and worship for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now this is way deeper than just don't make yourself an idol and worship it. 
Idols are anything we put over God. Money, greed, lust, anything. Luke 16, 13. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. And there's also uh, something interesting about this commandment. It actually speaks about the punishment to the third and fourth generation of those who worship idols. That's something we're going to actually see later in our storyline, um, how um, family lines will actually be punished to their third and fourth generation. This is going to be interesting. And we'll, we'll refer back to this commandment over and over. Commandment three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or earth. There's lots of different ways to look at this one, um, whether it's um, someone saying the Lord's name in vain, or whether it is referring specifically to just dishonoring God and living a, a lifestyle that completely throws him out. Commandment 4, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Jesus said in Mark 2, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus just really was having fun with this commandment later, healing people purposely on the Sabbath and doing spiritual work on the Sabbath. He really turned this one on its head. Commandment 5, Honor your mother and father, and it will go well with you, and you will live a long life. Matthew 10, Jesus said, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. According to Paul in Ephesians 6, this command is unique in that it is a commandment with a promise. And the promise is long life for those who honor their mother and father. So this promise is very interesting. I sincerely hope one day the Barna Group or some other organization would one day delve into statistics of lifespans of people who honor God versus those who do not. And I really believe the results would be staggering because of this commandment. You know, I ask the listeners out there, do you know of anyone who's died prematurely, um, who has dishonored their family or, or those who came before them? Commandment six, you shall not murder. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Jesus goes further and tells us to forgive our brother not only seven times, but seven times, seven times. See the depth now. It is bitterness that leads to evil and murder. Jesus is attacking the heart or even the spirit of the matter. Look at another, look at nearly every purposeful murderer in history. He had bitterness deep in his heart. Commandment 7. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is crazy deep given the state of this world we're in. Jesus attacking the spirit of the matter. Adultery is a crime, but lust is the spirit behind it. Commandment 8. You shall not steal. Matthew 5, If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Commandment 9, you shall not give false testimony. Matthew 12, men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. This is terrifying to anyone who likes to talk a lot. The entire book of James seems to zero in on this issue. 
Commandment 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's, neighbor's property. Luke 12, be on guard against all types of greed. Jesus is taking this code to a new level, making it impossible for man to achieve. When Jesus comes, he basically turns almost everything on its head. That's what Jesus does. Here's a good example. Honor your mother and father. And it says, honor your mother and father, and it will go well with you. Jesus says not to love your mother or father more than God. And another place, he says, if anyone does not leave his mother and father to follow him, they do not have a place with God in heaven. It seems like he's making so many contradictions. But Jesus is clearly, in this case, placing a priority to certain commandments, especially the first two. And since I just went through all the commandments, I would like to tell you that they are the most important of God's commandments, but they are not. And despite the elevation of the Ten Commandments, that God himself spoke out of the darkness, this is not the case. There is a commandment Jesus said is the greatest commandment, and it's actually Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So Jesus made it obvious it's not possible to live a sinless, perfect life. For this reason, God gives Moses, during his first 40-day fast, instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle. And the instructions are very specific. God even empowers two men to work on the Tabernacle and the Ark. This is where we get to something that's pretty amazing. We see the first man filled with the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Others previously were empowered, but it is the first use of the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, here's another parallel with Pentecost, where the people are filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. In this case, the filling occurs to give two men knowledge of all kinds of crafts. The thought that the Holy Spirit could indwell or infill a person is totally radical. That man has a cavity or spirit cavity in him to contain or hold a portion of God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit is staggering, completely new to history at this point. We learn that demons inhabit people all through history. Why not the Holy Spirit? This is part of the New Testament covenant that God himself will dwell in his people. But we will not get there again, except for in rare cases, until Pentecost. Here's the account, Exodus 35, 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage of all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he has given both him and Eoleb of the tribe of Dan the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all the master craftsmen and designers. Not only did these two get God's Spirit in them, but the ability to do heavenly work, which is kind of like getting the matrix download from heaven. They didn't have to go to school. They were just supernaturally empowered to create, create works of art and teach others. Once these two guys get supernaturally charged, 
They get busy, and during the time of their stay at Mount Sinai, they complete the tabernacle and the ark. Here is the details of the tabernacle. But before I begin, I will be pulling from the Rose Guide to the Tabernacle. It's one of the best modern resources I've been able to find on the tabernacle. I'll put a link to it on the Facebook page. The word tabernacle means dwelling place, and it was the portable dwelling place for the presence of God from the time of Exodus to Canaan. The entire tabernacle was set apart by curtains. It was 150 feet by 75 feet. There were three parts to the tabernacle, the courtyard, holy place, and the most holy place. The symbolism of the three chambers is quite incredible when you consider it compared to your body, soul, and spirit. And you'll see that the, these three chambers will also be in Solomon's temple. The outer court was for sacrifices on a bronze altar, and there was a bronze laver for the priest to be ritually clean. The holy place housed three important objects, the golden lamp, table of the bread of the presence, and the altar of incense. The lamps had to be constantly burning, and the incense had to be offered twice daily with fresh bread weekly. The most holy place was separated with a thick veil whose symbolism at Jesus' death is quite staggering. The room contains the Ark of the Covenant and God's very presence dwelling in the room. The holy priest could enter the most holy place but only one day of year, the Day of Atonement, to speak with God himself. It's just really crazy that God would only meet one person, the high priest, only once a year after intense ceremonial cleaning, while Moses could just talk to God face to face. There's such a separation for those in relationship with God compared to those in religion with God. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest of acacia wood about three and a half feet long by over two and a quarter feet wide and high. It was overlaid with pure gold inside and out. There was gold rings and poles for carrying the ark. On top of the ark was two cherubs, or angels. At this place, God said he would meet with the high priest and give all the commands for the people. The ark will actually become a central object for the next series of podcasts, especially when it is brought into armed conflict. The ark is a thing of legend in our world. It disappears from history after the reign of Solomon. Some say it still exists under the Temple Mount, Others say it's in Ethiopia being guarded until the return of Jesus. It's been a topic of many movies as well. In addition to the tabernacle, there was the tent of meeting. Here's the account, Exodus 33, 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while Moses spoke with the Lord. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This account further reveals Moses' relationship with God, but it also gives a secret to Joshua's success later. Even as Moses left the tent, Joshua did not leave the tent. This account will round out Exodus. The next book in the Bible is Leviticus. Yes, I said Leviticus, the stumbling block that it is. I really can't believe I'm about to do this, but I'm about to summarize Leviticus. Well, sort of. If you have been Leviticus, like many people, hang in there. Um, the problem with this, I kind of see it like a bystander 
grabbing a Harvard Law textbook and getting lost in the first chapter. It's a bit much for anyone without training. Honestly, the gears have to shift in their entirety. Entirety. You almost have to understand you're reading a religious or legal code from 3,500 years ago. The book of Leviticus was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The laws are extremely detailed, outlining every aspect of how and when religious offerings are to be presented to God. God gives instructions himself, and his words comprise the majority of the text. A brief narrative interlude describes the anointing of Aaron and his sons as Israel's priest. And at the anointing, God sends fire from heaven and the people shout. There are very specific instructions related to all sorts of sacrifices and blasphemy and food to eat. It's really hard to follow the strictness in the diet and to their actions, but some of the laws are easy to understand while others are not. The purpose of Leviticus is to give the complete detail required for sacrifices and priestly activity to atone for sin. So the Old Testament is showing the power of sin in this section. In addition, there are examples of those who were punished. The examples are blasphemy. Um, a blasphemer was stoned, and a Sabbath breaker was also stoned in Exodus. And to cap it off, Aaron's sons failed to make the proper preparations prior to a sacrifice and were killed when fire came down from heaven. In our culture, we struggle with these extreme examples, especially since it's so contradictory to Jesus' actions later. It's really a hard pill to swallow. We'll see this legalism fade as time goes by, but we will see it resurface here and there, namely in the time of David when a friend of his is killed for touching the ark, or when Saul tries to offer a priestly sacrifice and loses his kingdom. It would be easy to say this is just an Old Testament thing, but there are New Testament examples as well, like Ananias and Sapphira. Extreme judgments always lead to more questions than answers, but one thing it does is that it gives people a wake-up call. Take this serious. Now, God means business. Obey the law. But above all, it gives a person a fear of the Lord to honor and obey God. To conclude this episode, a message to kings and to round this out, we have to really project ourselves out of this period. Honestly, it would have been miserable to live in this time period. I would have been terrified of making a mistake every moment. This is absolutely why I love the verse from Jeremiah when he says, I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write it in their hearts. It will be their God and they shall be my people. How much better would it be to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, providing a moral compass of sorts to help us to live a daily life to keep the commandments? I like to think of myself as a balanced Christian, where I live a life with balance. I have the fear of the Lord and hate sin, but at the same time I live in grace where there's abundance of life and mercy to walk every day. This concept of balance was non-existent, at least to most of the Israelites in this time frame. Instead, it was extreme, where the fear of the Lord was being presented in its fullness, and there was little grace. This extremity will be picked up by the Jews at the time of Jesus, and they will be so legalistic that they will plot to kill Jesus simply because he healed someone on the Sabbath. Jesus comes in the spirit of the law. In the legal world of today, many times people try to figure out what the spirit or purpose of a law is. Jesus comes with a complete understanding and fulfillment of the law to the point that the legalistic rulers failed to capture it. He was coming in the spirit of the law with greater understanding of the purposes of it. The law was given to show the power of sin. 
but Jesus came to give us authority over sin. For example, in Leviticus, if a person touched a leper, they would become unclean and most likely become a leper themselves. In the New Testament, if a believer touched a leper, the leper became clean. It's the unfolding revelation of God and the true picture of the authority of Jesus and those who walk with him. Without the law, we wouldn't have a full picture of sin, and without Jesus, we would not understand the full picture of grace and the power we have over sin. In this time frame, the fear of the Lord is being demonstrated in its fullness, and we have to understand that God speaks in extremes at times. What I get from this is the fear of the Lord, and when I read these stories, I seem to feel the fear of the Lord, and I'm gripped with my need for a Savior and atonement of my imperfections. But it is hopeless for man to find perfection through works and legality. No one, I mean no one, will ever be sinless. It is impossible. Only one in all the world from its beginning to the end has ever fulfilled the law. According to Paul, it was created and written to reveal our sinfulness. Jesus came to not do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Atonement is required for man's sin. Jesus came, the spotless, pure lamb, required to be sacrificed to atone for our sins forever. To wrap this up, I didn't mean to take this path this week, but this is what I got out of it. When we have a true knowledge of our sin, there is always hope. Paul summarized the law and fulfillment of the law in Jesus in the book of Romans. Used by nearly every major evangelist in history, this is the Romans road to salvation. The book of Romans is Paul's definitive account of the gospel, and I'll be going over a summary of it, which is called The Romans Road. I'll put a link on the Facebook page to The Romans Road Understanding of the Gospel as well. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love for us in what, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.13 Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as the Israelites venture to the promised land, spies are sent out, and giants are discovered. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.